RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC, aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector. I'm Ash Daniels, the host of this podcast, and each month we'll discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA-regulated entities, TPR-regulated entities, as well as offshore professionals and accountants. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening, thank you for joining us. Today I'm joined by Rob Morris, and we're going to be discussing the third-party rights against insurer acts, uh, acts plural. Um, now, on the last episode, I took David on a journey back to the 1980s, but today we're going even further back, back to the 1930s, which is when the first third-party rights against insurer act came in. So, Rob, welcome back. Um, if you could just give us a brief outline of the 1930 Act. So, you know, in summary, why was it created and what exactly did it do? Yeah, of course. I definitely remember the 1980s, but uh, thankfully not even I remember the 1930s. Well, quite. I mean, I was going to think of some witty remarks about the 1930s, um, but I decided against it. I thought I didn't really want to embarrass myself with my lack of historical knowledge. Well, I suppose uh, global recessionary fears and economic collapse, 1930s, 2023, (laughs) similarities, but there we go. That's very true. I was just about to say, perhaps we're more like the 1930s than we realised. I'm not sure that's a good thing. We have to go back even further, really, than the 1930s, though, to before the 1930 Act was first introduced to understand why it was needed. So... Before 1930, or before the 1930 Act, if an insured company, or indeed an insured individual, entered into formal insolvency arrangements, such as liquidation, the proceeds of a liability insurance policy would simply fall to be available to all of the company's creditors in liquidation. So if a claimant made a claim against an insured and that claim succeeded, and if the policy responded, the claimant would not necessarily see any benefit from the proceeds of that policy because the proceeds would simply enter into the insolvent estate and be shared amongst all of the creditors of the company. And of course, often that means that one individual creditor, such as the claimant, would only see a few pence in the pound by way of any kind of recovery, if indeed anything at all. And it was generally considered this wasn't really appropriate because part of the reason behind a liability insurance policy is to provide some kind of particularly consumer protection for claimants. So the government introduced the 1930 Act and this introduced the idea that on liquidation, or other forms of formal insolvency arrangement, the insured's rights in a liability insurance policy would be automatically transferred to the third-party claimant. Uh, And in that way, the proceeds of the policy, provided that the claimant can establish the insured's liability, the, the proceeds of the policy would be paid directly to the claimant and wouldn't disappear into the black hole of the insolvent estate. So that that was why the 1930 Act was introduced 
uh, and it lasted for a very long time and formed um, performed a very useful purpose, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. A very long time indeed. I was just thinking over seven decades it was in place. So, you know, it, it must have been good for quite some time. Um, and it did make some very progressive changes and it took some good steps forward. Um, but like many laws, it wasn't perfect and some changes were needed. So could you just tell us about what the problems were with the 1930s Act and what the new, although I'm not sure how much longer we can continue saying the new Act, um, which came into force in 2016, but is entitled the Third Party Rights Against the Juris Act 2010, did to make some changes. So what did the 2010 Act do to rectify those mistakes from 1930? So there were a number of different issues with the 1930 Act, as you might imagine for a piece of relatively old legislation. But the main problem with it was that before a claimant could bring a claim directly against insurers, under the policy and under the Act, the claimant first had to establish the insured's liability. So if we were to consider a professional negligence claim, the claimant would first have to demonstrate and prove, establish either at court or by way of arbitration or agreed settlement, for example, they would have to establish that the insured had a liability to it. And only then could the claimant pursue a claim against insurers. Now, that, of course, caused problems because, first of all, it often meant that the claimant had to issue two sets of proceedings. First, it had to bring a claim against the insured, and then it could bring a claim against insurers. But it also caused bigger problems, particularly if the insured entity was a dissolved company. So if uh, an insured company had gone into liquidation and had been wound up and subsequently been dissolved, the, the company no longer existed, uh, meaning that the claimant would first have to restore the company to the register before it could even then bring the claim against the insured. So it just made the whole process very cumbersome. Yeah, very cumbersome and not exactly attractive for claimants, I would imagine. No, not not attractive for claimants, but actually not attractive for insurers either very often because it created this two-stage process, created very much a dilemma for insurers because they had to decide as the claimant was making its claim against the insured, did the insurers step in and defend the insured? Because, of course, the insured, particularly if it was a dissolved company, there's nobody there, there's no one there to defend the claim. So if the claim just proceeds without insurer's involvement, then inevitably there would be a default judgment, which would be all the claimant needed to pursue a claim against insurers. So insurers had to decide, do they step in and defend the insured? But in doing so, they might be considered to waive coverage arguments that they might otherwise have. So it was quite difficult uh, strategically for insurers. And the, the 2010 Act, by the way, the 2010 Act slightly newer than its name would suggest um, because although the act was first um, published in 2010 it didn't actually come into force until 2016 which is slightly bizarre so it's only applied from 2016 but even so yeah it's probably not really that new anymore and and instances of the 1930 act applying are now vanishingly small but the, the main thing the 2010 act did to rectify problems with the 1930 act is it allowed a process 
whereby the claimant could seek in one set of proceedings a declaration from the court, both that the insured is liable and that insurers are obliged to indemnify. So in effect, it enabled the claimant to argue issues of both the insured's liability and policy coverage all in one set of proceedings. And that, of course, was also potentially advantageous to insurers because it enabled them to deal with both of those issues all in the same set of proceedings. And that really, there were other changes as well within the two acts, but in many respects, they're, they're pretty similar. So one of the main issues with these acts, the 1930 and the 2010 Act, has been limitation issues. Um, issues might be the wrong word, but yeah, the application of limitation has been hotly contested, I think we can safely say. And whilst there has been some recent case law development in this respect, which I'm going to get you to talk about in a moment, so no spoilers, um, what was the position with limitation under the 2010 Act um, until very recently, until those first instant decisions I referenced? Well, it was probably worth starting what the position was under the 1930 Act first. Um, and yeah, it, it was a slight, slight, in many respects, a slightly bizarre situation. If a claimant was pursuing a normal claim against an insured, insurers would, of course, have the benefit of normal limitation rules. So if we're considering, again, a claim in negligence, we would have six years from the date that the cause of action accrued, which is very often the date that the advice is given or steps are taken following the provision of advice. And there would be three years from the date the claimant acquired the relevant knowledge under Section 14A. And if those time periods had expired, well, then insurers effectively were off the hook because the insured had a valid defence. And you might think that under the 1930 Act, insurers should be in exactly the same position. And because it's often said, and by and large it is true, that the claimant is not put in any better position as a result of the insured becoming insolvent and the application of either of the two acts that we're talking about. Um, so you would think perhaps that limitation would work in exactly the same way. And so if claims are bought very late in the day against insurers, then insurers will be able to rely on all the limitation defences that the insured had. And in principle, that remains true. But there's a problem, and the problem comes about because of a slightly adjusted limitation regime for claims against companies in liquidation. And this, I mean, if the 1930 Act is getting a bit dated, well, the case law I'm now going to refer to gets even worse, I'm afraid. So there, there's two key authorities, one called Regeneral Rolling Stock Co., and, and that's from 1872, would you believe? Um, and, and another one is Re Benzen from 1914. So these are pretty well-established pieces of case law. <laughs> well, yeah, well-established is, is a very nice way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. Ancient is another way of putting it. Uh, and these cases established an important principle for claims against companies in liquidation. Uh, and they held, in essence, that where there is a claim within the liquidation, and that's an important phrase that I'll come back to, then as long as that claim would have been in time at the date of the company's winding up, 
well, then it will remain in time, notwithstanding the further passage of time. And the reason for that principle was to protect creditors of a company so that they weren't prejudiced by long delays that can be encountered with progressing liquidations of companies. So as long as the claim is in time at the date the company enters liquidation, um, that's good enough. And the further passage of time whilst the liquidation is carried out and the liquidator does their job, then there's no further prejudice to the claimant. So with that general principle in mind, there was then a case in 2005 that was in fact a claim that the FSCS, the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, brought against a firm called Larnell Insurances. So the case is FSCS and Larnell Insurances. And the FSCS was pursuing a claim against Larnell purely for the benefit of then being able to bring a claim against insurers under the 1930 Act because Larnell was in liquidation. And that case um, went to the Court of Appeal and it went to the Court of Appeal on a limitation issue because insurers who had stepped in to defend Larnell for their own benefit, of course, insurers were arguing that the FSCS's claim against Larnell was out of time. Whereas the FSCS was arguing that because Larnell had entered into liquidation, limitation had effectively been suspended from the point that Larnell had entered into liquidation, thus effectively preserving the FSCS's claim almost indefinitely. The Court of Appeal, unfortunately for insurers, agreed with the FSCS, and it did so by concluding that the FSCS's claim or indeed any third party's claim against a company in liquidation for the purposes of then pursuing a claim against insurers under the 1930 Act. That claim was a claim within the liquidation and therefore it benefited from this rule that claims within the liquidation would be suspended for limitation purposes from the date of liquidation. Now, the court reached that conclusion for various reasons, one of which was it didn't like the idea that you could have different limitation periods for essentially the same claim, depending on what the purpose of the claim was. And the court made the point that a claimant, a third-party claimant, bringing a claim against, the third, uh, against an insolvent, liquidated company might have multiple reasons to bring that claim. So they may very well want to bring that claim in order to establish the insured's liability and then pursue a claim against insurers. But they might also want to bring the claim in order to make a recovery directly within the liquidation. So, for example, there might be an excess on the policy or maybe the claim is worth more than the policy limit, in which case the claim has multiple purposes. It, it might involve a claim against the insurer, but it may also involve a claim to recover assets from the company. And principally for those reasons, the Court of Appeal held that it was a claim within the liquidation and it did benefit from the suspension of limitation. And this is really very unsatisfactory for insurers in particular, because if you think about it, if a claim is made against a solvent insured, 
more than six years after the cause of action accrued and more than three years after the claimant acquired the relevant knowledge, well, then there's a clear limitation defense and insurers do not have to indemnify. And obviously, there are policy reasons behind limitation, namely stale claims are more difficult to fairly deal with. And yet, because of this decision in Larnell, if insurers were faced with a claim under the 1930 Act, well, they could be bought many, many years after limitation had actually expired. And indeed, it wasn't uncommon for claims to be bought very, very late on after normal limitation would have expired. I mean, it, it does feel inherently unfair. I mean, obviously, we represent insurers, so maybe I'm slightly biased, but it does feel inherently unfair. Insurers under this regime are unable to have you know, any certainty about cases and whether they could be brought going forward. Um, but there is a potential, an emphasis on potential, light at the end of the tunnel, and that's following some recent first instance decisions, um, which have suggested that maybe a different approach to limitation be taken under the 2010 Act. Yeah, sure. Um, as you say, potentially some light at the end of the tunnel, um, but uh, we will have to wait and see for reasons I'll explain in a minute. So obviously what I was just discussing uh, about the decision in the FSCS and Larnell, that related to a claim in respect of the 1930 Third Party Rights Against Insurers Act. But more recently, there's been a series of first instance decisions in respect of claims under the 2010 Act. Now, these were all claims that were made by third party claimants directly against insurers under that new process under the 2010 Act that I mentioned. So that was a, an application to court directly issued against insurers, which can also include the insured as a party, but which is seeking a declaration from the court that the insured is liable and also that the policy responds. And the same limitation arguments cropped up and the claimants sought to rely on the FSCS and Larnell decision. So the claimants argued that their claims were claims within the liquidation of the various insureds and therefore limitations should be suspended from the date the insureds entered into liquidation. But once again, the insurers tried to run the argument, uh, as was run in Larnell, that actually these were not claims within the liquidation and therefore limitations should apply in the normal way. And in these cases, if limitation had applied in the normal way, then the claims would have been time barred. And in these series of first instance decisions, the courts have accepted that claims under the 2010 Act, and specifically claims where the declarations are sought from the court directly as against insurers, those claims are not claims within the liquidation of the insured. And therefore, limitation does apply in the normal way. The decision effectively in Larnell is distinguished in that way. And that potentially is of great benefit to insurers. Now, a note of caution is that unsurprisingly, these decisions are all being appealed. Uh, and as I understand it, permission has certainly been obtained, but we're just waiting for a hearing date. So it's, the appeals are going to the Court of Appeal. Um, we imagine that they will be heard later this year. So we will have to wait and see what the Court of Appeal says. 
Uh, and of course, the Court of Appeal will have to be satisfied that these cases, so claims under the 2010 Act, are fully distinguishable from its earlier decision in the Larnell case. Otherwise, the matter will have to move on up again to the Supreme Court. I mean, a decision from the Supreme Court would be very interesting and useful in this respect, but we'll await with interest and see what the Court of Appeal decides. But whilst we're waiting the appeal, is there anything that insurers could or should be doing, particularly in relation to any claims that they may be facing already? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, whilst it's going to be appealed as it stands at present, those first instant decisions are currently good law. Um, So, you know, they should be followed looking at it at the moment. I think probably um, everybody's got used to the application of Larnell and and often a limitation can get overlooked in third-party rights claims. And certainly this series of first instance decisions have only relatively recently come to light. I think it was sort of the autumn of last year, so 2022, that these decisions came to light because they weren't reported decisions initially. So insurers may, well, first of all, insurers will need to just remind themselves, as indeed will we, that when dealing with third party rights against insurers acts claims, we do need to consider limitation that, as you rightly say, as things currently stand at least, and and unless and until the decisions are overturned, limitation will apply in the normal way and will not be suspended by an insured entering into liquidation. So that would be for new claims coming through the door. But also insurers might want to just keep in mind with any old third-party rights claims they're dealing with, it may previously have been determined because it was believed that the Larnell decision would apply to 2010 Act claims as well as 1930 Act claims. It may have previously been determined by insurers that there were no limitation defences. Whereas now, of course, it's worth going and revisiting those files and just checking. So I suppose, first and foremost, before any settlements are paid, any payments are made to third-party claimants in respect of 2010 Act proceedings or 2010 Act claims, insurers do need to think very carefully and should reconsider the question of whether limitation may have expired. Because, of course, it can catch out the third-party claimants who may have assumed limitation was suspended, when in actual fact now it would appear that it hasn't been. So unless they've run off and issued protective proceedings in the meantime, then time will have continued to tick by and it may present limitation defences, whereas previously there were thought to be none. Well, thanks very much, Rob. We've, of course, as a team, seen many more cases uh, using the 2010 Act. And so I'm sure this summary will be really useful for those insurers and anyone dealing with any such claims. Um, So thank you very much for coming on to talk about it. And we'll, of course, update once we've had that Court of Appeal decision, um, either via the podcast or via blogs. So listeners, do keep your eyes and ears peeled and we'll update you as soon as we can. Thanks very much, Rob. Yeah, well, hopefully later this year, early 2024. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Ash. RPC Radio. Radio. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again next month when we'll be discussing the hot topics in the financial services sector. Please do click to subscribe and be sure to check out our other RPC publications 
at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Finally, many thanks to today's guests, as well as everyone behind the scenes at RPC that make this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.